0: Amen. Well, good morning. Man, you had to be committed to get here in person today. So thank you for those of you who did that. I was actually trying to get in the door of the building this morning. I got hit with this gust of wind and then spilled my tea all down my notes. And that was an unfortunate event. Um, But we got it figured out. So we're good. So welcome to those of you who came out today. Welcome to those of you who are tuning in online this morning. I'm uh, grateful to have you guys here, grateful to share this moment with you. Uh, though it is a difficult moment, you know, one of the things that I've recognized over the last 20 or so years almost now that I've been here at this church is that of all the things that I enjoy doing as a pastor, uh, this is actually the thing that probably I enjoy doing the most. I really do. Like, I love it. Like, I get excited about God's word. I get excited about seeing other people get excited about God's word. And so as terrifying as it is, you know, to get up and to talk sometimes, um, it's a fun kind of thing for me to do. But it feels a little less fun in this moment. I got a call from a pastor friend of mine in town probably six weeks ago. And he was, I mean, like I could hear that he was just mortified. And he's like, hey, man, I, I've got a real problem. I don't know what to do. He said, you know, I, I booked this trip with my wife in November. November. And he said, I just realized it is the weekend after the election. And he said, I can't get out of it. He's like, are you still meeting on Friday nights? Because if you're meeting on Friday nights, then maybe you could preach for me on Sunday morning. Just, you know, do what you did on Friday on Sunday, live at our church. And I said, man, you know, I'd help you if I could. But we've moved to Sunday, so I'm not available. However, can I go with you? And um, he said, no. So I'm here. But the reason for the moment being tough is obvious like this is a moment full of danger and not just for me i'm not i'm irrelevant like forget about that this is a moment full of danger for the american church and therefore for america those two are not disconnected they're intimately connected as goes one goes the other but as i thought about it i realized you know this is also a moment in which if god will condescend to speak a word that gives faith in his people for this moment, not just here, but all over the country, okay, man, this is one of the greatest opportunities of our lifetime. This is actually pretty exciting. So to that end, together with approximately 100 other churches, 12 different denominations, five different counties here in South Florida, we're starting a three-week series that we're calling Undivided, but therein lies the peril, doesn't it? The peril lies in the fact that just like our country, we the church are not undivided and worse than that, depending upon who you are and what you look like and how you vote and what you think and where you stand on this issue and that issue or this issue or that issue, we're not even entirely sure, that we want to be undivided. Like we're going, I can be undivided with that person and with those people and maybe with that guy over there, but I'm pretty sure I can't be united with that person or that person and definitely not him. Yet undivided is the name of the key that unlocks and opens the door to the opportunity that we have as a church right now. And there's no way for you to read through the Bible and not realize that we're supposed to at least be undivided it's kind of a big deal. You know, one of the universal pursuits of humankind for as long as there has been a humankind has been the search for unity and diversity. We've all recognized that we're diverse and that that causes problems. How do we unify? How do we unify? How do we unify? How do we unify? You know, for the last 2000 years, Jesus has been jumping up and down going, hey world, I've got this. Like, I have this. Unity, diversity, that's me. Like, I do that. I major in that. That's the gift of my gospel. Just look at my people. Oh, wait, don't look at my people. But you should be able to. That's the point. What are the images for the people of God in the New Testament? What do they say about our oneness? Paul comes and says, Hey, Christians, you guys are like different parts of a body. Okay, well, listen. If a body is anything, a body is one, which is why when you smash your toe, your mouth immediately yells something you regret. Your whole body walks around like this the rest of the day. What else? We're living stones in what? In a singular temple. That is to say, we come together to form an organic whole that is the dwelling place of the Lord God. We're one. What else? We're the bride of Christ. We're not many brides. No, 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 all of us together, collectively, one bride. What else? We're the children of God. We are members of his family. And look, here's the deal, and maybe you're experiencing this right now. I completely understand that politics and race and social and cultural issues divide families. Like maybe that's where you're at. You're like, hey, Thanksgiving is off. We cannot be together. But it hurts, doesn't it? Why does that bother you? It bothers you because somewhere deep down in your heart, you're thinking to yourself, shouldn't the fact that we're family transcend this stuff? I think the answer to that is yes. And I think that's true in my family and in your family, and I think it's true in the family of God as well. It should transcend this stuff. And perhaps nowhere is the reasoning for this spelled out more clearly than in the second half of the second chapter of the book of Ephesians, which is really just a letter that Paul is writing to a church that he planted in the ancient city of Ephesus way back in the first century. And if you know that chapter, you know that in the first half of the chapter, what does Paul do? Because it's amazing. He comes to us and talks about our oneness with God. He's like, listen, let me tell you about the miraculously transformational, impactful power of the life-suffering, death, burial, and resurrection on the third day of Jesus Christ, God-made man, son of God, on your relationship with your heavenly father. Okay, all of the barriers between you and the Father that you were absolutely powerless to do anything at all about, Jesus has removed. Christ makes you one with God. That's first half of chapter two. Second half of chapter two, he comes and says, hey, you know that same power? Yeah, it applies to us as well. And you say, well, you know, (laughs) okay. But Paul never saw anything like 2020. Actually, he saw worse. He was dealing with deeper divides. Paul was a Jew who lived in a world run by Gentiles. And the Gentiles ran the world in such a way as to offend every possible Jewish sensibilities. And for their part, the Jews lived in that world. And they were worshiping community of Jews, guys, in every major Roman city in that day. They lived in that world in such a way as to offend every Gentile sensibility. I'll give you some examples. The Jews worshipped the one true and the living God. All right, all of the Gentile Roman citizens worshipped a multitude of gods and they measured how good of a citizen you were by your devotion to the gods. So the Jews, one god, the Gentiles, lots of gods, and if you're not on board with the gods, you're basically what's wrong with the country. Meanwhile, the Jews labeled the Gentiles idolaters and pagans. And by the way, they were right about that. But I mean, if you just kind of embody that for a moment, it's not endearing. You don't go, oh, I got warm fuzzies now for them. But there's a lot more. I mean, the Jewish people would only eat food that was clean according to the dictates of the law of Moses, okay? The Gentiles ate anything they wanted, which made them, according to the Jews, unclean. Not just what they ate, they themselves were unclean. So like a Jewish person wouldn't step foot on your property. He certainly wouldn't sit on the porch with you. He definitely would not come in and eat a pork sandwich. You know what I mean? Like if you were sitting on a park bench and you got up as a Gentile, a Jewish man wouldn't sit there because you touched it. Like if you're a Gentile man and you're looking through your kitchen window and you see your Jewish neighbor and you're thinking olive branch. You know, what can I do to reach out to this guy? I mean, certainly we we can be friends, right? And he's sweating it out. You know, he's landscaping or whatever. And you pour a cup of cold water and you go over and you go, Hey man, first of all, I love what you're doing with the property. Looks great. You look thirsty. I don't know. Cold water. He'd be like, first of all, step back slowly and put your feet back where your feet were when you entered in. Get off my property. You're making it unclean. You're like, okay, uh, you thirsty? No, I can't drink that. It's unclean. Like, what do you mean? I, I clean the cup. No, no, no. You're unclean. Therefore, the cup's unclean. And listen, they're adhering to the law of Moses. I get that. But ouch. The Jews were a sexually chaste people. The Gentiles were anything but. In fact, in the city of Ephesus, this city where this church was located, all right, the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus was the goddess Artemis. She was the goddess of fertility. So try to imagine how they worshipped the goddess of fertility because it was outrageous to the Jewish people. But the outrage of the Jewish people was outrageous to the Gentile people in that city. And why is that? Because the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Like everyone knew that. They all came to see it from all over the world. It was the single greatest source of civic pride. What's wrong with these people over here? The Jews valued life and children. The Gentiles did not. If you couldn't take care of yourself, they let you starve to death. Seriously. You were a drain on society, you had nothing to contribute anymore, your utility was gone, you starved to death, we're not going to come around and help you, we're not going to feed you, it's done. Any unwanted children, and this happened all of the time, particularly with girls, they would just take the child out and they'd put him in the woods or somewhere down the street or on the rocks down by the ocean. They would be subject to the animals. I mean, I don't mean to get overly graphic, but really, I mean, that's, they, the child would die of what they called exposure. So prevalent was this practice in the Roman Empire that it actually threw off the balance between male and female. So in the city of Rome, in this particular moment that Paul is writing, for every 131 men, there were only 100 women. Think about that. That's not a little imbalanced. So from the Jewish perspective... Man, the Gentiles were idolaters, they were unclean, they were immoral, they were murderous, and they were not to be associated with. And from the perspective of the Gentiles, the Jewish people were moralistic, judgmental, and what's wrong with the country? Terrible citizens. need to get rid of these people. And Paul, and just try to embody this, is now the pastor of a church that he's pastoring from a distance in this moment, that has both in it. And he's going, No, 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 I understand there's a deep divide here. No, 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 I understand. You you guys are divided politically and racially and culturally and socially. I understand in addition to that, and this separates it a little bit in terms of where we're at, these guys have been at it for generation after generation after generation, and it's much more ingrained, been going on a lot longer. He's like, I get all that, but here's what you need to understand. When you became a Christian, you gave up your identity as a, Gentile and took on the, as a Gentile and took on the identity of Christ. And when you, Jewish people, became a Christian, you gave up your identity as a Jew and also took on the identity of Christ. And in Christ, he says, we are one. And then he gives the reasoning. Chapter 2, verse 14, he says, for Christ himself is our peace. No one else, nothing else, him. Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and is broken down in his flesh like it cost him his life to do this, the dividing wall of hostility, how? Well, in, in their case, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance contained in the law of Moses, that said to the Jewish people, Listen, this is unclean, and this is, and you can't do this, and you can't eat that, and that separated these two people. Jesus gathered that up, he fulfilled it in his life, and he put that all to death in his body on the cross. Now, he's like, Look, if your Gentile neighbor brings you a cup of cold water, enjoy it. Go over, sit on the porch. You want a pork sandwich? It's really awesome. He got rid of that which divides. Because what is his purpose for his people? It is that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, first of all, between us and God, but then beyond that, between us and us. Take that in. Soak in that for a minute. Let it work in you. You know, one of the truly trivial, and man is it ever, things that I have been grateful for nonetheless (laughs) during the pandemic is the start of the college football season. And I recognize that that's an eye roll for some of you, uh, which is why I said that it's truly trivial, it's just that I'm a fan. And you know what? It just it feels like normal. And basically anything right now that feels like normal, I'm just so grateful for. You know, I'm just like, oh, yes, it's normal. You mean I get to watch that? That's amazing. It's something I would have ordinarily done. But I mention it because I think it provides for us a helpful, not perfect, but helpful illustration of how we're to function as one. So if you're familiar with the game, you know that in a college football game, you have a home team and you have a visiting team. By the way, I looked it up. Each team has about 105 players. That was news to me. I didn't realize they had that many, but that's the deal. So 105 players, home team, visiting team, they both have their own coaching staffs, lots and lots of people. Home team has like 80,000 incredibly rabid fans. Visiting team probably has more than this, but it feels like they have about eight. And those people are really crazy because they have signed up to be completely abused for about three hours. And what these people do is they show up not to witness something, not to just sit back and go, hmm, you know, but really like to actively encourage, I mean, to go crazy encouraging about three hours of non negotiable conflict and violence. It's the way it goes. It's three hours in which the home team gets the ball. And they do everything they can to outmaneuver, to outmuscle, to outthink, to deceive, to trick, to whatever, the visiting team, so that they can take the ball to the goal line. And then the visiting team gets the ball, and they do the same thing. How can we trick them? How can we deceive them? How can we just run right over them? How can we punch them in the face? We're just going to ram the ball in so that they can get the ball into the end zone on their part, and whoever does it the most wins in the end. And here's the thing about a football game. There is nothing you can do to stop the conflict. Nothing. Why? Because it's the nature of the game. But in the midst of these two teams, there's a third team. You know who they are? The officials. Seven guys who no doubt were themselves once players on one of these teams. I mean, maybe not this particular team, but you know these guys love the game. You know they grew up playing the game. I mean, they probably didn't make it all the way to the college level or certainly maybe to the pro level. I don't know, maybe some of them did, but for sure high school, for sure peewee leagues, they for sure coach all their kids' football games. Like, these guys might actually be the most rabid fans in the whole stadium. And maybe the team that they have a lifelong devotion to is the home team or the visiting team. However, when they put on their official's jersey... They set all that aside. Their role is to be in the midst of the conflict without becoming a part of the conflict. For they have been deputized, you see, by the NCAA up in Indianapolis to be representatives of the NCAA up in Indianapolis, the kingdom, if you will, to which they have pledged their allegiance down here in the chaos on the field. And they do that by uniting together to bring the ethic of the kingdom to which they belong up there onto the field of play down here. For you see, they've received a book from the kingdom to which they belong. And it is a book that gives them all of these principles and guidelines by which the decisions, if you will, on the field of play are to be made by them. And they understand that when they sign up for the deal and they put on their official's jersey, they are subjecting their passions, their desires, their whatever to the dictates of that book. They form a third team. And their conduct on the field is not in any sense a popularity contest. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes the officials get booed and sometimes the officials are cheered And believe me, one feels better than the other, but neither are the goal. Their goal is to bring the ethic of the kingdom to which they belong up there onto the field down here. And what that requires is for them to remain independent enough to throw flags on both teams. Now, in every football game, I mean, you know, maybe there are a few exceptions, but In every football game, you have teams, right? And then one team gets more flags than the other. Man, they're more out of alignment with the book. Fine. But the officials throw flags on both. They reward the good conduct of each and they call out the bad conduct of each. And they are grossly outnumbered. Again, 105 players on each team plus coaching staffs, 80,000 Rabbit fans, eight who are really nuts. Massively outnumbered. All of the players, even the kickers, are faster, stronger, more powerful than they are. But here's what the officials understand. They understand that they possess the authority of the kingdom to which they have pledged their allegiance. They wield that authority for the benefit of all of the players on the field. And you know where I'm going with all of this, right? I mean, I hope it's incredibly apparent. But the reality is that we Christians, we the American church, are living in the midst of a nation that in many ways is at war with itself, politically, culturally, racially, socially, you name it. There are competing teams on the field, and there is nothing we can do to stop the game. in fact, it's not a game at all. Compared to it, college football is less... Than nothing. Can we agree with that? It affects the lives of hundreds of millions of people, and in fact, I can only think of one thing, one thing more important than what we're seeing playing out in our country, at least if you're an American. But it's not just a little bit more important. By its very nature, it is infinitely more important and that is the eternal kingdom of our eternal king whose name is Jesus and who calls us above and before our citizenship to anything or to anyone else, above and before any other allegiances that we form or have to pledge our allegiance to him, to value our citizenship with him and to advance his kingdom as our singular cause in this world. It's a remarkable thought. You see, we have been deputized by Christ Himself, and He has given us His book. And it is a book that we are to submit all of our passions to, and all of our inclinations to, and all of our other allegiances to, for they are infinitely lesser. And to be sure, as we unite together to bring the ethic of our kingdom onto the chaos of the field of play here, which, by the way, is the goal, we are outnumbered, man. We are not powerful. We are not this. We are not that. But here's what we do have. We wield the authority of the kingdom of God by the power of the spirit of the Lord. And we need to be independent enough with our official's jersey on to throw flags on all the teams. And there are several. To affirm the good and to denounce the bad. And there are going to be teams that are more out of alignment with the book. You know what? They get more flags. But there's a third team in the world, in the country. And the third team is us. And if ever there was a moment in which our country needed to see a united church wearing a different jersey, it's now. Guys, a fractured, despairing, dark, and angry nation whose first impulse, no matter what team you belong to, is to attack and to take, needs to see a diverse and yet united people, hopeful, light-filled, merciful, whose first impulse is to love and to give. It's different. Jesus says, you want to know how the world is going to know that you're my people? It's by the way you love one another. We're like, I don't know. Do you say anything else? You know, like, is there another option? I mean, I'm, I'm still looking, you know, like... He's like, no, no, no. Actually, that's it. You're part of my family and that transcends. Wear the jersey. It's a moment full of danger, I think, for the American church. And therefore, then, for America, why? Because as important, and believe me, it is important who governs us. As important as that is, it is not the cure for our country. Our problems run deeper. They have everything to do with our hearts and souls. And there is only one who can change the heart and the soul of an individual, of a group of people, or of a country. And his name is Jesus. And we are his sworn, avowed ambassadors. This is his team. And there's no plan B. We're it. So let's give the world something to look at that doesn't display the spirit of this world. The spirit of the world, if you haven't noticed, has been on full display, and I'm just going to say it through many of us. It is not redemptive. It is not merciful. It is not gracious. It is... Pharisaical, it is harsh. Let us give the world something to look at that looks like the fruit of the Spirit of God who is redemptive, who is merciful, who is gracious, who is kind, who is loving, who is forgiving, who unites. And let us give them a display of the power of the gospel. Again, Jesus is going, hey, hey world, you want to see it? You can look at my, oh. But he should be able to. Look at us. Because of him only and to his glory alone, by his power in accordance with his book, we're different. I think that's what the world needs to see. So I just have one question for you today. And I ask it in love, like if I could hug each of you, I would. (laughs) But what jersey are you wearing? So we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. We're going to do that both online and in person. And if you are doing it with us online today, that is awesome. Welcome. We're thankful that you're doing that. I hope, I hope, I hope uh, that you watch the video that Ryan put together uh, because it is important. In fact, it's imperative that you use the right elements to be able to do this. Just like baptism is done by water and not by anything else, the Lord's Supper is observed with the fruit of the vine, which is grape juice or it's wine or it's, and some kind of bread, preferably unleavened bread. And so we had put that stuff out there. If you don't have those elements, we would encourage you to not partake. But if you do, having now walked through this with us here in a moment together, then we would encourage you to partake. I want to talk a little bit about the table and I want to remind you of some things. The table is a table of repentance. It's where we come to lay things down. It's where we let the, word, wor- the Lord work by his word in us, faith to lay things down, to confess things, to set them aside. And I think all of us, I mean, I don't know how any of us can make it through this whole season or the season yet to come unscathed in that regard. Like nobody's perfect when everything's seemingly fine. Oh man, there are just so many more puddles to step in at the moment. and I think we've been stepping in them. Let's come to the Lord and say, Lord, you know what? My passions about this are not as strong as my passions for you. One of the most convicting things I heard this week was when one of our pastors said, man, I think that if our people were as passionate about seeing people come to faith in Jesus as they are about whatever party that we belong to, our alpha classes would be full and they're not. And I thought, ouch, that stings me a little too. It's true. I think a lot of us are walking around in a hopelessness that does not belong to God's people and reveals a misplaced hope, despair. Lord, give us your hope. reorient our hearts in this moment. Let us come to the table and lay that down and take up the hope again of Christ. It's a table of unity. One table for a very diverse people. We're different and yet we come around one table. There's an implication in that. And what is the implication? It is that we are to, to live our lives also as one. The implication is that if you've offended somebody or if somebody's offended you and they might not even know about it because you know it happened on your phone or something, you go seek them out. You say, you know, I, I was, almost came up for communion, but I didn't because I realized I have a problem that I need to work out with you. And I'm not here to convince you of anything. I'm not here to argue. I'm here to say, I want to own this together. And I want to be at peace because I think that's Christ honoring. And so if there's somebody that comes to mind for you, then go do that before you come to the table. Like, we'll do this again. But otherwise, it's a table of forgiveness. It's like the big exhale, man. It's the place where you just come and go, it's like Jesus says, listen, I'm going to preach the gospel to your ears in a spoken way. But I I just like, just to be sure you get it, I'm going to give it to you in a way that like for every other aspect of your body taste and and you can sight and, and smell and touch. You can interact with the reality that I am so great that no matter what you've done, I've defeated it for you. And I'm so great that I can defeat all this stuff between you two. So you come and you lay your burdens down before the Lord. You take up the emblems of his work on your behalf, which is finished. And you take them in joy. So we'll do that in a moment. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this table. As hard as this moment is, we thank you for this moment, for you are the God who works. You're the one who brings good. Lord, we look for the good. Ask you to work in our hearts now. Holy Spirit, speak. Break that which needs to be broken, instill that which is missing, encourage that which needs to be encouraged. And make us more like Jesus, one Savior, into whose image, by the Spirit and by the Word, every Christian is being conformed. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.